For our 11th episode, we traveled to Zambia to check in with Yuna Hammond Masuka. Yuna and I met in Peace Corps, Guatemala back in 2010, so she knows me as Javi. Yuna currently lives in Zambia with her family, runs Aligned by Design, and is an inspiring coach, mentor, and leader. I'm Jared Carpenter, and this is Wi-Fi and Water. Hey, Yuna, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Javi? I am doing well. Um, I'm currently eating a banana. Sorry, it's early. And you are <laughs> zooming in all the way from Zambia. So you're in the yes. future. <laughs> yes, already at 2 p.m. in the future. Already at 2 Look at already at 2 p.m. I'm just getting my <laughs> 8 o'clock banana. And I don't drink coffee. I don't know if you know that about me, but I have my seltzer. Um, okay. Yeah. Isn't that strange? I don't know. Listen, it's probably a better thing. It means one day if all the coffee suddenly goes away or you can't access it, you'll still be able to function with a smile. So that's <laughs> probably true. That's true. And like I, I read stuff about that coffee could go out for a billion different reasons, all human inflicted. Um, of course. Uh, yeah, right. Obviously. Um, I'm going to shut my window here. Uh, so yeah. Coffee, if that goes out, it's going to be interesting because so many people, I feel like you're drinking coffee, highly function on coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker myself because oh, I don't good. want any form of, like, I need this to function. I feel like that's dangerous. <laughs> so it's not chocolate. Exactly. Anything where I need to be able to do something else creates a serious dependency, whatever that may look like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just always got, like, a lot of – so Yuna and I met in the Peace Corps – uh, in Guatemala, and Guatemala has some of the world's, not just regions, the globe's best coffee. It's real stuff. And I just feel like I always got shtick from people who are like, wait, you don't drink coffee? Like, what's wrong with you? You know? So True. I didn't know that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Kinder spirits in that regard. <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, in the Peace Corps, Yuna and I, while we were in the same group, we were seemingly on different planets because we were sent to different regions of Guatemala. And so Guatemala is like any place on the planet. If you go 25, 30, 40 miles, you could be in a different context. Um, and so, yeah. So tell us about where you are right now, Zambia, how life is, what you're doing. We were just talking a little bit about entrepreneurship. Um, Give, give us the breakdown. Give us the give us the the, the the two minute elevator. If I just saw you in the elevator for two minutes and we had to do a check in, lay it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have been in Zambia for the last six years, and I came to do public health. I stayed for love, and along the way, I said, you know what? Let me stop pretending that I love public <laughs> health and actually do what I feel called to do and what I'm good at doing, and that is teaching. Um, and the thing that I've been doing for the last 10 years since Peace Corps actually is working with leaders and managers. And so as a student of management, I said, no, I have things to share, best practices, tools um, to share because management's hard. It's not intuitive. None of us went to manager school. So I've been developing um, two businesses, my personal business aligned by design, which focuses a lot on much smaller businesses and on individuals providing coaching to them. And then I'm part of a consortium of four businesses that does the same thing, but on a much larger scale for corporates. So, and Zambia is wonderful, moderate temperatures all year round, amazing. Some of the most friendly people that you will ever meet in your life. Everybody said, if you're going to start anywhere in Africa, oh my God, start in Zambia. And they were absolutely correct. It's a fantastic place to live. How, what's the population of Zambia? Just to give, just to give, you know, just to give me an idea. Oh gosh, is it 17? I think 17 or 18 million. Okay. So roughly around the same population size as Guatemala, more or less, if we're going to. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I was like looking up and one of the things I find fascinating is whenever someone lives in a landlocked country, because there are few of them on, well, there are, there are a good amount of them, but there are seemingly less landlocked countries in the world because having a port and being able to be in the ocean is transport commerce etc and zambia is one of them um and so that was just kind of like a fun fact and i was like oh zambia uh and looking at your entrepreneurial stuff yeah so you have a line by design and then you're a part of the consortium when you say that a line by design works with smaller uh 
smaller businesses or you know single sole proprietorship those types of things is there a size in which you say all right you're not good for a line by design let's bring you in the consortium or is it like you know even if i'm a one even if i'm one person and i come to you i'm like you and i need help do you start me with a line by design and then you bump me up to the consortium depending upon you know if my revenue is a certain thing or is it if your team is five or more you already start with the consortium how does that work that's a great question. Um, so it's actually the scope of work, how much work there is to do and for how many people plays a role, but really it's, do I have the expertise? Because as a business owner, I'm committed to giving you my best within my expertise. And if I feel like it falls outside of that, then I need to draw on somebody who can help you with your ex with their expertise. So I'll never do something for you that I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I can deliver. <laughs> I don't believe in that. So. If it's a, it could be a group of 15 or 20 staff. So I, I do individual coaching for a group of 20, a team, and I do team buildings for them and our feedback culture, communication structures and all that with them. Um, but the scope of work is enough that I can handle it on my own. So for some of our other groups that have 100 plus staff members and we work all the way from their assistant directors to their mid managers, to their supervised line managers down to their junior staff, we do workshops at all levels for almost a hundred staff members, that's definitely not something I could do on my own. So and I think it's the scope of work that determines where you fall. Okay, very cool. Cause that was, when you said that, I was like, wow, how does that work out? Because someone could be doing, you know, two, $2 million of revenue. And then there could be a team of 30 that's only doing 500,000. And I just would be right. interested, yeah, at how you would approach that. And then, so for the trainings that you do, from the hierarchy, you know, down from the leaders all the way down to more of the the people on the ground, maybe as we'll call them, or you know, in the diagram, the hierarchy of the organ or organigram, whatever they call it. Um, I assume that there's different. Is there different trainings that use the same language, so everyone gets on the same page as far as this is the way we're going to interact with one another, or is it the same training given with different variances? So I would say it's a combination of that and also depending on what they need, it can be different. So for example, if we're talking about communication um, and within that we narrow down to feedback to say, look, our feedback culture is not very good. We might do a, an all staff team building where we play different games because I don't believe that adulting should hurt. So our my team buildings are always so much fun. We don't sit in front of PowerPoint, like we're <laughs> playing games, we're talking to each other, we're making fools of ourselves. So at that level, we create the sort of common, okay, how, how do we wanna go about this, defining the culture that we want? Then we might break it down into the levels where you have more senior management, um, and there would be driving a culture where it's okay to say, I don't know, where it's okay to give someone feedback, where we don't just shut down and everyone's like, no, abort, abort, don't ever give feedback again. So <laughs> at that level, we talk about creating a culture where it's okay to give feedback. As a manager, like a level down, we would talk to them about how do you give feedback so that you help somebody's performance? Not just like, okay, I think you could do better. That wasn't very strong. What does that even mean? Like, can you give me some actionable feedback that I can do something with to get better next time or know what I did that was great so I can do it again in the future? Um, so we kind of train them on the specifics of giving feedback and receiving feedback, very critical. And then we might give that same thing down the line, but from a perspective of, look, you don't have all that much power. You are in the workforce here, your junior staff, but your manager still needs to know certain things. So how do you respectively give feedback up the chain? How do you take feedback from your manager? How do you make sure that it's clear when it comes to you that you know, even if they didn't say it clearly, how do you clarify so that you know what to do differently or to repeat next time? So variations kind of along the same line. I hope that answered the question. No, it does. It's, it gives me a great idea of I think the kind of work and the workshops that you're doing. And so looking at communication styles, because you and I in Guatemala know that in Guatemala, if I want to say, Hey, Yuna, I think it'd be better if you did X, Y, and Z, that might take me five minutes, even though it just took me five seconds. And I may need to buy you a coffee and a bread and have a sit down yes. and go meet your family and walk through the woods for like two hours with you talking about, the yes, weather to get the there. Whereas yes. you and I are from a culture, or at least we like to think we're from a culture because it's not always that case. Um, we're from a culture being in the United States where I'm like, you know, 
I saw what you did there. If you did this, this, and this, how does that make you feel? How can I support you? And will that work? And you're probably more likely to be like, okay, I hear you. I'll try to do that better. I felt like your feedback was honest and true and this, that, and the other. And we're almost done with it in 15 seconds. Maybe I check in with you in a week or two and see how that's going. We open up communication lines. How does that play in the Zambia role as far as communication? <laughs> I know that we that's only have an hour maybe for the podcast and this could go that question alone because communication is fascinating. Know, right? Talk to me about that. What, what's, the, what's the communication vibe in Zambia? Yo, it, that's such a good point. I think Peace Corps was such an excellent launching pad for working anywhere outside the West because there really is so much rapport building and maintaining and um, Zambians are very non-confrontational. They're very friendly, like love, harmony and peace. And like, I feel like one of the only countries maybe around that has had no civil unrest, um, no wars. They're just very like peaceful, calm people. And that translates to their communication as well, which can make it very tricky to kind of give this feedback. Um, one, there's two secret weapons that, that I use. One of them is a tool called SBI. And it helps take out a little bit of the sting by giving the feedback in a very neutral way about what happened as opposed to who you are or um, sort of at a make making it less personal and kind of making it neutral. Here's what happened. Here was the impact of that. So that's secret weapon number one. Number two is I have African business partners. So while I understand the cultural nuances, there are certain things that I just, I will never say like, oh, so why don't you do it in a way that violates my own desire for like honesty? But my, my counterparts are able to say, that's, Amer that's Yuna's American way. You and I <laughs> would say it kind of like this. And so I make sure to have people around me who, as much as I'm not like a native part of this culture, who are a more native part of this culture who can say, okay guys, let's translate that into what it means. And if they're not there, I ask the same question. That's what Yuna would say with Muna's background. What would Mulenga say with Mulenga's background and her boss or her colleague? What's the most appropriate way to present this? So working on framing. That's, but it's that's tough. A, yeah, and definitely having somebody locally to say, hey, like what they said was this, what you heard was this, but what they meant was that. Yes. That's super yes. powerful. And that's why, you know, in the Peace Corps, they always hook you up with a local counterpart to help you navigate mm -hmm. some of those cultural nuances, cultural obstacles, cultural, like 90,000 shades of gray. Um, yes. because especially in Guatemala, I remember being at a business meeting and I was with a, a partner, uh, my partner who was also from the United States and we left and we thought this and our Guatemalan partner was like, no, we thought it was a yes. And we left. And he was like, that's a no. And we're like, wait, what do you that's mean? A no. Right. What do you mean? Uh, the mayor had said this, this, and this. And he was like, yeah, it's a no. And it was a no. But we just didn't pick up on the slight body languages, the subtleties, yeah. the use of like overly conditional verbs rather than future verbs, um, you know. And But it's just well, the vibe. <laughs> it's such a good point that there are certain nuances that even if you're listening and even now, as long as I've been here, I think you could spend maybe a lifetime somewhere, and especially in a place like Zambia, where people are, you can stomp on everyone's toes and no one would say anything to you. They would just smile and be like, oh, you are so sweet. <laughs> they wouldn't ever correct you or say anything. They would just let you stomp around <laughs> maybe one day. In a few years, they might be like, yeah, that's actually not a good plan. Um, but it, it is difficult to pick up on all those nuances. Like you can keep learning, like you said, listening for certain things like, okay, what tense are they using? What words are they using? But every situation is so different. Um, and, and one thing I think that I've learned makes such a big difference is your upbringing. I mean, we know that, but like Zambia is big on hierarchy. And so we feel very comfortable. Like my voice matters. I can say something to my boss. It still might be hard for us, but it's like, not unthinkable, but just you don't manage up. You don't tell your boss, like, look, the way that you're managing me, I'm unable to deliver for these reasons. Or like, look, the timeline that you set is not practical. Or look, this guy's not going to do what he says. So if, if they were with me, 
and they knew as a junior staff that this was a no, they might not even say that to the boss. They'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> like, leave it at that. Um, so the hierarchy in your culture matters so much, which is why it's important to me in my business to have African business partners and pull people in from different sectors and say, hey, how do we do this feedback thing? Because socially, yes, let's respect hierarchy in the family. Culturally, we need to put Zambia on the map. Like we need a strong workforce that can do projects, it's gonna lift the whole economy when we're productive. And to do that, we have to be able to communicate with each other. So how do we preserve the beautiful Zambian culture that exists in the workforce create something that also works professionally and and allows us to make money and have impact to be effective and where does the in the hierarchy of that right so yun is my boss i'm yuna's employee i want to say something to yuna about her leadership style what leads me to not do that is it shame fear a lack of confidence what is it just out of just respect for the hierarchical culture what do you think drives that? Because many times I feel like, you know, in, in, in our society, we'll think of, or is it scarcity too, right? Where I really need this job, so I don't want to ruffle feathers. So I'll just stay where I am, keep my head down. I'm going to do my work. Um, so that scarcity is also like scarcity mindset, which is, is fear-based. Is it just out of strict respect? I respect Eunice, so I'm just going to listen to what she does and I'm not going to question it. Is it out of shame of not wanting to be, and this is a completely different question, which I will ask, is it a shame we're not wanting to, to be wrong? Maybe I am wrong. Where does it come from um, as far as the culture? Is it a mix of all of those? What do you think drives it? It's definitely all of those things. I think it's driven by, there is a deep respect. Like if you remember in Guatemala, they would say licenciado or licenciada, leak, leak, leak. They use titles like that meant you, you were a graduate. You had a, a degree of some sort. And I think it's the same in a lot of non-Western cultures. You've worked really hard to get where you are. It means you probably have more experience, more knowledge, more networks, more of everything to, to be there. That's the assumption. But also with age. So if somebody is your, your senior, um, even if you manage them, and that's difficult in the US context, but especially in this context, if you're young and you manage someone who's older, there is an inherent respect for the gray hairs, the age, the experience that they have that you don't violate, which is why how you say it matters, but also even that you're saying it is like, whoa, I would not love to say that to him. <laughs> so inherent respect is one. Um, I think confidence, that comes out of the whole they know more than me, they deserve to be there, they have this title, this experience, is what I, does my voice really matter? Like we're raised to think that our voice matters in the US. And I find in other cultures, it's like, I know my place and my voice doesn't matter as much as your voice. And I respect that. I'll get there one day and I'm not there right now. Um, and when it comes to the general communication, I don't know that that like shame plays such a big role when it comes to, hey, Avi, my project is gonna be late. We said Thursday, it's definitely not coming until next Thursday, here's what happened. Absolutely shame, like my confidence will be questioned. I can't tell them, I don't know how, I can't tell them that it's gonna be late. And so we always say pause. Either you tell them now on the front end, listen, this isn't happening in two days, it will happen next week and you look like you feel incompetent or you don't deliver and you actually are incompetent. Which one of those would you rather fight with? And as much as logically everybody gets that, it's so difficult. You walk up to them and you're like, hi, okay, have a good one. And you just can't get it out because that's not what people <laughs> do and because you feel like an idiot. So bridging the knowing doing gap is the difficult piece of like, yes, I hear you. Yes, I should. No, my lips just won't say it. So that's sort of where we're trying to fight now. Um, how do we make that a Zambian, a culturally appropriate thing um, in the workplace? Because it's got to happen. The idea of bridging the knowing and doing gap, I love because having spent time in entrepreneurial spaces in Colombia and Guatemala, there's this knowledge that, yeah, I should do these things, but then I won't do these things out of a lot of the reasons that you just kind of laid out. Um, respect, 
the potential shame around, um, you know, not knowing how to do something. And is that the same? Cause you know, in Guatemala, so many times if you, it was worse to admit that you didn't know something. And so people would just make things up. Hey, where's the park? And they'd be like, Oh, that way. And yeah. And we would, I would do it. And like well, recent, I was in Antigua and I just walk around the outskirts of the, like of Antigua about three blocks in the park and just ask people, Hey, like, where's the park? And they clearly know I'm not from there from my accent. Um, and it was fascinating to see some people just like point towards like the mountain. I'm like, Oh, okay, thanks. But because, you know, expressing and saying, Hey, I don't know can bring a lot of shame and it shows like a lack of intelligence, which means it said, which implies other things. Whereas where we're, where we're from, when I say where we're from, like the United States, this culture, it's like, be as open as possible about what you don't know to anyone because like you said you don't want to you don't want to promise and then really not deliver and that's just as simple as saying you don't know hey i don't know but i think it's down there or i don't know but let me point you in the best direction why don't you ask the store owner they'll know because they live here right um, ask somebody else. yeah and is that is that part of a culture too where for example if once again in the scenario i'm an employee you're my manager and i ask you for support on something would you being my manager in zambia be more likely to give me the wrong answer than say, Hey, I don't know the answer. Let me bring in manager. So-and-so manager. So-and-so can you help out this guy? Because he needs help. And I'm not in, do people pull in people in a collaborative sense on their level to help people maybe under them? That's a really good question. I actually haven't run into that as much. I, I think they definitely wouldn't say, I don't know, because that's not, something that easily crosses most people's lips. I think regardless of culture, I think in the US, depending on your personality, and because the environment's more conducive, you might be more like, you and I might say like, look, I don't know, let me find out. But in general, people might say like, yeah, let me get back to you, <laughs> let me get back to you. So they definitely are a very collaborative culture. So I think they would, but I doubt that they would say, I don't know. But it brings me to an interesting point that Throughout having this business for the last three years, one of the things that I really touch on a lot is that who you are as a person shines through when you're a manager or even a part of the workforce, a junior staff member. So if you're unable or unwilling to see that somebody needs help and put down what you're doing to help them as a manager, well, that's kind of your job. You're a caretaker. If you're not willing to be transparent with your staff and say, guys, or even just Maybe it's not even about you, but say, look, guys, we got these projects at the last minute. I know that we're super frustrated. Sort of motivate them and say, hey, how are we going to deliver this work? But just being a human being while you're being a manager and not just saying, like, look, guys, this, just get the work done. But I'm busy, but this happened, but that happened. Like, save it. Um, here's what has to happen. So who you are, who you are becoming matters when you're a manager, because if you're not sort of thinking of your role as caretaker. It's your job to create a transparent environment where your team members can be honest with you. Are you honest with them? Do you ask how they're doing as people or you just go do the work um, matters. And so a lot of my work is really trying to help people realize, number one, who am I? And is that a person who can manage this team as a team needs to be managed with humanity and compassion and honesty and those kinds of characteristics. So it's kind of a weird, weird way to think about management, but it's my passion and my calling, I think. And it's helped people think about it in a way that's like, so you mean I can't be a douchebag person and also a great manager? Like not really, cause you're gonna carry those douchebag tendencies. Am I allowed to say that? You're, to <laughs> you're totally, this is a all ages podcast. And I honestly, okay. I honestly think that like swearing or profanity, when we were growing up, it was hard for us to access if people in our immediate circle, like our parents or our friends or their parents or our grandparents, if they weren't swearing, like we kind of were never exposed to it. Maybe like I'd play on a sport team sure. and like some other parent on the other team or me even on my team would yell at the ref and drop the F-bomb or something. But the world we live in now, like a kid can get on YouTube and hear horrible things from like seven. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, you're all good. And like, we live in a global pandemic. Kids are exposed oh. to everything that we weren't. So. You're all good. Say, say what you guys say. Yeah, no. And, and so what you're talking about is really just that like personal development helps managerial development, you know, talking about compassion, coming from a place of compassion and empathy and holding space for 
life happens and yeah, this is due Thursday, but you know what? We're going to push the due date back till Tuesday because so-and-so's family member got sick with COVID. So-and-so's family member, this happened. And that is a conversation which I think managers in the United States have actually gotten a lot better with. I think that for a long time, the United States was like, you know, you show up or you're late, this, that, or the other. And I do think that that has really changed over the last 10 years. Also, as people have started to realize that it doesn't have to be, this isn't the industrial age. Like this isn't like, we're not working in the mills and the factories. We don't need to be in there for 12 hours. And productivity is something that is, they're still trying to figure out the best way to measure it, you know, and countries, European countries that work like 30 to 35 hours a week are oftentimes more quote productive. And also mm-hmm. people are happier and they live longer than That's in the United States. Yeah. than in the United States where it's like literally the hustle. And I talk about the hustle all the time. And I think it's just so fascinating and like hustle porn and you know, these memes that are like, I get up at 5am and I love my work. And like, if you're not to try to create, like if you're not doing that, then there's something wrong. You're right. And so talking about the hustle and all that and the entrepreneurial, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about how different it is to start something in Zambia. I speak about Colombia because that's more, or Colombia or Guatemala, or just being outside of the context, especially just of the United States and how sometimes the United States, it's, I personally feel that the fact that I have different businesses to make my money and to move myself forward I feel on the outskirts because all my friends don't have that. And so our hours are different. They don't align. Like literally maybe they work a nine to five and I'm up way before nine to zoom with somebody who's, you know, on the other side of the world or I'm doing a project which is time intensive. And so I'll work on it for, you know, two to three days almost straight to get it done. And so talk to me about what's the entrepreneurial vibe right now in Zambia. Is it, growing because of where the world is right now in quarantine uh how is that playing a factor where is that right now such an interesting question and i actually did not fact check this but i was helping um, somebody write an admission statement to cambridge and she said actually second to nigeria zambia has the second highest number of entrepreneurs on the continent I, i did not fact check that but I would not doubt if Zambia was in the top five. That comes for a lot of reasons. Number one, Zambians are super creative and in their spirit are like, yeah, let's let's do things. But also there's not a whole lot of, there's not enough formal work for everyone. So definitely everybody that I know when I talk to them about my business and my struggles trying to transition from being born and bred into a system where you, you get a job, like I said, you get a job, you get insurance, and then you die. That's the end. Like you get multiple jobs, but you just stay in the system. That's it. Um, it's hard to transition into, wow, I'm now an entrepreneur and how do I generate income and business and interest and all these things. And no matter who I talk to, they always have all these amazing ideas about how to do that. So very creative people, um, who, who make things happen. Like, okay, so I started a a business selling beef and then I grew into goat and pork and whatever else. Um, So very diverse things that people do as well. The, what you said about the people having an idea, I feel like is the way that people talk to me about Peace Corps, coming back from Peace Corps. Because, you know, whenever you probably tell someone you're an RPCV or I tell someone I'm an RPCV, I would say one out of four people will say, oh, I wanted to do that. And then this happened. Oh, I was going to do that. And then this happened. And I feel like it's the same way with business ideas. Because if you and I both took all of our friends who had business ideas and each gave them $200,000 of startup capital, we would be in a different place. But I think there's a lot of fear and the unknown of going into something and not having all the answers that because you don't have all the answers, you're not even willing to take the first step right? You're not even willing to say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to start with beef. And then it's going to come down the line where I'm going to do pork and I'm going to do lamb or I'm going to add in different meats. And I'm not even going to have a butcher shop anymore. I'm just going to deliver it to people's houses. That's it. I don't even need a brick and mortar. And I think working in other places, not the United States has always, I've always felt more comfortable. And I even feel more comfortable living there being more of an entrepreneurial person, especially in the context of Columbia where it's like 60 plus percent of the population works in the quote informal economy which is a 
way of saying really? essentially they work for themselves. Um, yeah, because like you said, there's just not that many jobs. You know, if yeah. we look at like, if everyone in the United States who could get a job had a job where they could fill like their pegs and they need to go in their holes, it's just not every year things are changing. It doesn't mean that the jobs necessarily are going away, but they could be evolving into different jobs. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, the skills you once had are no longer align, align by design, align with those types of things. And it's like, I think, who was it that was talking about the truck drivers? And it was like, yeah, in the next 10 years, when all these truck drivers, oh, one of the, Yang. yeah, I, I, Andrew Yang talks about this too. It, you know what? It might've been Yang Gang, Yang Gang 2020. I love him. Uh, he was, I think he was talking about, it might've been Andrew Yang, but they were saying that, yeah, okay, you take truck drivers. Technology isn't the solution. You can't take a 50 year old, anybody, male, female, whoever, and then retrain them into like coding redo this into yeah. this, right? When their whole life has been one thing, it's really hard to get people to hard pivot, especially later on in their careers. And so being in Zambia, do you feel the same thing? Do you feel potentially more support than you would if, you know, close your eyes, all of a sudden you're back in the States doing what you're doing? Um, and how does being in Zambia potentially give you a leg up or does it? I, I always say I probably never would have had a child or started a business if I was in the U.S., to be perfectly honest, because number one, the, the safety net that I would say in Zambia is that the cost of living is affordable. So if I fail or if I really struggle to get off the ground, like I know businesses do, I'm not going to starve. Like I might not have a lavish life, but I'm going to be all right. Like it'll be simple. It'll be rough. Um, but I'll be fine. I don't need to file for bankruptcy and health insurance is not astronomical. So that is one safety net. But two, I feel like because there's less regulation, and I don't know how to say this without it sounding bad. Ah, I know. <laughs> so people are willing to give you a chance. People are willing to give you a chance. Like, oh, sure. I heard that you do team buildings. Yeah, why don't you come try us out? We have something we want to try next month. It's ABCD. I feel like in the U.S. there's so much more, not just regulation, but like rigid expectations. Like, are you certified in this? And do you have this? Yeah, that's important. But it also crushes the spirit of like, I'm just trying to get started. And if, if it's about taking one single step to get started on a journey, you just crushed me. Like, I don't have a certification. I've never been to that, this or that school. I have yet to launch the LLC part. Like all these not barriers, but like things that you need to achieve, collect before you can actually start. And in Zambia, literally, you're like, I've opened. Welcome, everyone. I've opened. And you just get started. And along the way, you register. And then if you decide you need more schooling, you do that. But it's much more flexible and welcoming um, to somebody who's new to the space. So Yeah, no, there definitely are. I, I, would, I, I personally would call them barriers to entry right? Because in order for me to play ball, I need to get all of these things in a checklist to then even feel confident to then put my first foot forward. That's a huge barrier to entry. Whereas if I'm yeah. in Guatemala and Colombia, like many of my friends who started little side hustles or businesses, they literally create a Facebook page, create an Instagram account, connect them, make the Instagram account a business account. They get, uh, you know, business cards made for like 10 to 15 bucks and then they're off and running. And then they're making connections. And, you know, in Colombia, people are a lot less likely to ask if you show up and you're like, yeah, I do managerial training, uh, you know, and we work on compassionate empathy and we increase feedback loops and et cetera, et cetera. They're a lot less likely to say, oh, you do that? That's great. Why don't you come in uh, during a lunch period? We'll try you out. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Whereas I do feel in the States, you have to be like, oh, I have my master's in this, this, and this. Absolutely. I've worked with, you know, this this and this you probably also need a website um which is a huge barrier to entry for many people uh, yeah yeah and so that was just i was excited to speak with you this morning uh because i know you're in zambia and i was in colombia when covid started but i decided to come back home um to help out my parents they're they're much older and also i knew that colombia's health system was going to be in a tough place and if i can take myself out and be one less person on that system that's always better yeah um that's and so fair. but that's why i was so excited to talk with you about that and so where is your business now let's just i guess we'll focus on a line by design or you can talk about the consortium wherever you are where are you currently 
And where do you see yourself? And I'm not even going to say, oh, in five years, where do you see yourself in six months? Because the six months is like five years. <laughs> yeah, so uncertain. That's a really good question. I'll talk about Align by Design. Um, currently, man, I won't lie. It's been tough um, as a small businesses who, business who services other small businesses. Um, when things shut down, they really shut down. And even we went into just a partial lockdown. So some people stopped going into the office and some people continued, but just the fear of, we don't know what's going to happen, caused people to hold their money so tight to their chest. So automatically we lost like six workshop days, which is, you know, the, one of the big income generators for us and the big activities that we do. And that word of mouth spreads like, oh yeah, they did a thing for us last year. We loved it. Call them. Um, so, so that has hurt, but interestingly, the opportunities that are presenting themselves now are around, it's kind of mid-year. So next week I'll be doing a mid-year review and sort of revamping the work plan to say, that happened, where are we now? <laughs> What's happening for the rest of 2020? What are we absolutely saying no to? What are we saying yes to? And how do we prioritize that and put it on the calendar in a productive way? So that's one of the things, sort of looking forward, where are we going? Um, and the other thing that is interesting, um, what does managing a, co a completely remote team look like? The you're remote, they're remote, if you are still remote, what does that look like? Um, and helping people talk through, so you mean I really have to check up on them once a week? Is that not micromanagement? Are they going to feel like I'm meddling? But trying to help people understand that when you're a junior staff who doesn't have access to the information that you as a manager do, you might even be wondering, do I have a job? What's happening to my department? Um, and they're missing out on these water cooler moments to just pop by your desk and say, hey, can you help me with this? Hey, what would you like to do about that? So by checking in more frequently, you're providing space for them to ask the questions that they might think, ah, they're way too busy. I, I won't bother them. Let me just try and figure it out. So that's been um, definitely one of the ways that we've been helping teams during this period. Um, gosh, moving forward. COVID has been an excellent opportunity to pause. I took two weeks off and I said, you know what? You're doing so many things, trying to make things happen. You just need to pause and figure out what, is, what are the one or two things that you actually want to and need to be doing right now? And let's pursue those. So um, next six months, I think we'll really focus on, I've got a new product that I'm launching through my coaching. It's called the Productive Lifestyle until I find a better name for it. <laughs> but it's a, it's a time management, really an attention management program because so much of what we do is connected to our ability to be productive. And in an age where the phone is buzzing, Slack is buzzing, email is going off the chain, like so much people are popping by your desk or calling you, WhatsApping you. It's difficult to get the focus that you need to actually get your core work done then you just are left feeling scattered and so many ways that we are not maximizing how our brain works. And so I've taken lots of different books and resources and put together a program called the Productive Lifestyle that will help us each create a customized way of working henceforth now and forevermore to deal with our distractions, to prioritize, to manage our schedules and really get the most out of our work time so that we can actually take time to rest. So that's one of the products that I'm definitely pushing. And do you think that will be out by, by the end of the year? Oh, it's out now. Like I'm piloting it now with a group. Um, it will be refined by the end of the year. Um, and especially if we're going to stay in lockdown where you have spouses and housekeepers and children and everybody around, um, you need those boundaries and that structure even more to help make sure that you're getting what you can done amidst all the chaos in your home or wherever you're working from. So. Yeah. And what's the feeling in Zambia that moving forward, everything is going to be online? Because that's really the feeling here. And people are shifting really? their entire business models. And I mean, even in my small town, right, which is just very anecdotal. So many businesses. Um, actually, it was in episode, I'll reference a podcast episode, episode four, Jesse Chauvin was on from Takora Zone. He has a taco shop which is similar to like the chipotle of guatemala but better as i would say and they oh. started in shayla and yeah they started in shayla and then they just opened up about a year and a half ago uh a new shop in antigua which 
you know, the overhead in Antigua is going to be double that of shit. Yeah. Right. And so he was talking about the beginning of COVID being one of th people were in one of three camps. And I love the way he broke it down because I see it now in my own local town and in the Boston area. And then, you know, nationally, he was like, people are one of three things. And I think this is true. They either see this thing coming and they say, it's not going to be a big deal. We'll be all good. They see it coming and they're like, this is going to be a big deal. Let's pivot our business now. This being like March, February. But they see this thing coming and they know it's a massive deal and they just say, we're going to close our business, suck up the losses, but we know they'll be short, like the loss will be smaller than it will be long-term if we try to ride this thing out because our business is based on uh, restaurants. You know, our, we're a restaurant and if people can't dine in, that's it. Um, or we're a hair salon and if people can't sit in our chairs, if we can't have you know, this many people sit, sit in chairs this many days of the week, we can't cover our overhead, we can't cover the rent, we're out. And so how has Zambia kind of approached it or even locally, how have you seen, because you are a B2B provider, you're a business to business. Oh yeah. What, what do you see? Are you seeing one of those three? Is anyone greater than the other? How, does, how is that looking? Uh, funny you should ask that it's such it's an interesting way to break that down because the third scenario the last one is not on the radar in Zambia like okay. oh my god we're just gonna close everything absorb the losses number one because we just had a partial lockdown number two because they then opened up and pretty much a lot of besides bars almost everything is open now um, even though we've had a second wave that's sort of picked up um, but number one we have just over 2,000 cases, less than 3,000 cases, and under 150 deaths, a lot of which are questionable if they were actually COVID. So mm. the, the feel is very much like, ah, we're going to be fine. Things are loosening up. People have even stopped wearing face masks in the street. Like everyone's just, as they say, over COVID. Um, so <laughs> definitely this whole like, let's figure out. No, they really are. They really I, are. So, I love that because the people are all globally. It's just kind of like, all right, we've done three months. We've done this thing. We've worn our masks. We've changed our lives completely. We're kind of over it. And that's also just the way we live now in a globalized world where we're on Instagram and we see someone going from morbidly obese to a six pack. And we forget that the dates on the pictures are like 2017 and 2020. And it took three years of dieting and exercise and lifestyle changes. But in our minds, it's like, oh, you know, from that's easy, right? To get that's easy. Good for that person. And so we're so, you know, and this is you and I, right? And we're in a different generation from the kids who now didn't get to finish their high school. And their generation is like 10 second Snapchat, you know, or they don't even have like their attention span. So they're being over it. I feel like maybe even happened before us, but as a globe, I think it is interesting that we're all like quote over it, you know, over it. Yeah. Yeah. So it will, it will remain to be seen like how the, the, how destructive, I guess COVID will be in Zambia or, or not be because it has been here since March and the numbers are still quite low. Um, but in this context, even if it was false and we just didn't test, the way that Zambian culture is, we would all know. The funerals would be out of control. The streets would be packed. Like, we would know if it was here, just culturally. So we haven't seen it, um, which also doesn't contribute to people's, like, perspective on, on what it means for Zambia. So I think it's very much slow, sluggish, like 60% business as usual. So. I'm very interested to see what this means for the future. I don't know. That's all. I don't know. Yeah, it's there's there's so much uncertainty, and that's why like asking someone or their five year plan is irrelevant. Like if someone has a six yes. month plan, and even like uh, leaving that open to contingencies, that's brilliant at this point because the world is just yep. constantly changing. And especially as I also have B two B services, and it's been very interesting to see how people are navigating COVID. And on this side of, you know, even in my local community, so many restaurants, when I say so many, I mean like four or five, but in a community of 50,000 people, four or five restaurants closing, I'd say five or five to seven shops have closed. Uh, and we're only four, five, four, five months, four months into this thing. And I think it will go on potentially for years until a vaccine and or herd immunity is met. 
And so if you just keep multiplying that, it's going to really gut, um, at least locally for us, it will gut many commercial places that are on the most busy streets. And also it will take out the tax base of those, what those people pay in taxes. So you're starting to really gut out the tax basin. Um, and this is once again, just one small community, very anecdotal. But if you multiply that on a massive scale and throw in the fact that we already live in an unequal world where access to health, access to sanitation, access to water, access yeah. to food. I just, you know, it's going to take people like you uh, who are out there in the field working with businesses to be able to continue to communicate, uh, to foster communication amongst those businesses to really make sure that everything keeps moving forward in a transparent and uh, empowering way. Right. And so that's why I kind of asked you about the six month and, and, and what you think is going to happen uh, for Aligned by Design. And I think the productive lifestyle is something that ideally, if it works, it's going to be, you could ship it globally. Do you have global ambitions or what are you thinking? I, I have continental ambitions. Ooh. I'm very Ooh. passionate about black excellence and about seeing black people get the the financial benefits and the sort of renown that they deserve for their creativity and passion and hard work. And so I would love to either on the continent or even within like black businesses in, in the US, um, but just to see it ex be exported. Um, I don't know, all of us struggle with being productive. And if I can get this thing right and put together, or at least right in some sense, to help people make a customized program for themselves where they actually, after say you finish the program, it's a couple months because changing the way that you work is not an overnight process. It takes, I've pet this, no, okay, that's not the right way. Okay, I've tried to work my schedule this way. No, that's not the way. So it will take time, but at the end of the program, three to six months, I think it will definitely make an impact on people's bottom line, either how your team performs or how your business performs or how you perform able to get promotions and all of that. And I, my passion, I do this work for anyone, but my true passion is to make sure that it impacts the black community. Um, that's what, what matters to me. So definitely working with all kinds of people and I'm actually branching out and starting to do work in the US as well, all for the purpose of being sure there's enough money to fund me doing projects and working within the continent. So, yeah. Very, very exciting. Yeah. And it is all of a sudden with COVID, like you said, it's created new opportunities. It's been a, you know, moment of awakening and realizing that if the, you know, you don't also, you don't to do money, much of the work that you do, you don't need to be able to be in the room. Yes, that would be better. Yes, it'd be better if you had a workshop space and a whiteboard and a PowerPoint where you can just even put up images or you know diagrams. But now that it's kind of global and you could export it globally, I think your reach could essentially be infinite, right? Especially in the black community uh, around the world. And so do you wanna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Could you give us like three tips about how to be more productive? Someone's listening and they're struggling to quote, be productive and they definitely need to improve their workflow. What mm -hmm. is three tips that would work for them, work for you, work for almost anybody? Do you have, you anybody. want to, you want to try Absolutely. to do that? Yeah. Let me, let me give it a shot. I've never like thought about it. Just give me the three things. So one, I would say first you've got to address your barriers to focus, barriers to flow. So barriers to flow. That, that's barriers nice. to flow. Is that tabs that are open? Is that your email? Is that your phone? WhatsApp, Instagram, like YouTube? What is it that is the barriers to your flow? Also known as distractions. You've got to be able to deal with those and really squash them. Like don't try and manage that. Squash them. Phone out of the room. Tabs closed. Um, notifications off. Like crush them. And when you're ready for them, you can turn them back on. But while you're trying to work, don't even, don't even mess around. Um, two, schedule your work blocks. Like we schedule meetings, but it's rare that we schedule our core, whatever your core work is. We rarely schedule that in. We just kind of work from this big to-do list and then we try and uh, make it happen. But if we actually schedule on our calendar work chunks, you're able to see how much time you do or don't have in your day. And you're like, oh snap, there's no way I'm gonna finish that project. or hmm, okay, you can see how your life is looking over the course of the week or the month. And I actually can see how I should have started in reverse. 
<laughs> You're getting auto feedback in real time. It's great to watch. <laughs> yes, to myself. Um, so, and the first one is be very clear about what you're working towards. So in a given week, we are all working on a lot of things, but what's the most important thing that you've got to get done? And go ahead and start there. Don't let anything as silly as email or a meeting with somebody else, they are important. But if your goal is to do this A, you shouldn't be working on F at the expense of A. Start with A, crush it, and then move on to all the little stuff. Um, while your brain is fresh and while you're like, yeah, the day has just begun or whatever your fresh time is. So those are super solid. So just to review, you have uh, barriers to flow, whatever that is. If it's your Instagram notifications, get that away, turn it off. Uh, second one, schedule work blocks. So that way, because we normally sometimes don't do that. And then the third one is kind of attack the biggest, the most important thing at the earliest part, whether that's the beginning of your day or beginning of your week, knowing that you know, if you're at Friday and that's your weekend, you can look back and be like, yeah, I got my goal. I'm good. I feel good. I can put this down and step away. So the big picture of all of that, like this productive lifestyle, the, the, these tips outside of that whole program, they're not things that you don't know. Like you didn't just recap anything that's like, wow, I never thought about that. That's amazing. <laughs> the, the beauty of engaging yourself and, and setting yourself up is that you create habits. So you create a lifestyle that allows you to always work in the most productive way. And creating habits takes time. Figuring out how to crush your distractions like on a regular basis and never let them interfere with your work takes time, it's a process. So the beauty is you walk through that with someone who you, you have little messages that you send like, hey, here's what I learned this week. Here's where I failed, here's where I won, here's where um, what I'm gonna take moving forward and here's what I think I need to adjust. Um, just the beauty of having somebody to walk it with you and a sort of structure to it all to say, okay, let's start from here and work our way around in a logical fashion. And you decide which interventions work, but let's make these best practices actual real habits in our real lives. So there's wow. the plug. The, the plug, the, there, there's the plug, there, that, that's, that's the tweet. Um, that's been great. And speaking of social media, where can people find you if they wanna reach out? Uh, get some more information. Maybe they hear you and they're like, yeah, we are located in wherever, but we really want to bring Yuna into our conversation to help out our organization. Where, what's the best place for people to, to find you? Yeah, thanks for that. So you can find me on Facebook at Aligned by Design or LinkedIn, the same name. Um, I can share with you, if you're interested, um, info at alignedbydesign.biz as well. And I can share all of that. But Pretty straightforward. I don't mess around on too many social media platforms. I just keep it simple. That's, <laughs> I think that's always best. You just have the one or two that you're really attentive to because sometimes people have, they're spread across like nine different platforms. And when you're that spread thin, it's tough to keep the quality up with the quantity. So Definitely. Um, this has been great. Yuna, I, I wish you the best of days and a good weekend and we will hopefully catch up soon. And thank you so much for being on the pod. Thanks so much, Javi. This was fun. It was good to think about certain things I hadn't thought about before and share experiences from Zambia. Um, it's been a pleasure. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wi-Fi and Water Podcast and reach out to us if you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for a future episode.